I'm Sadia Tariq and you're listening to Thani, the podcast. 1947 Partition Archive, the brainchild of Dr. Ganita Singh Bhalla. A physicist from the University of California at Berkeley, she found her calling when she visited Hiroshima during her research work. And ever since, she's been a historian, a memory keeper, a fabric weaver of the partition subcontinent in 1947. In this podcast, we talk about history, folk history, documented history, lived experiences, traumas, and so much more. Dr. Ganita, thank you so much for being on Dhani. Yeah, thank you for having me. Tracing back to your um, career, to your professional career, you um, have, um, you are a scientist, you're a physicist. And then um, the, the journey took you to being a historian. And that also, uh, so to speak, like a memory keeper uh, of the subcontinent. And I have so many questions to ask from you, but the first one is that can you briefly take us um, through this journey of being a physicist and what what happened? What made you move um, to this? And now that you're managing um, uh, the partition archive, and as you said, you're breathing it and eating it and sleeping it 24-7, 365, um, take us through the journey of how this came about? Yeah, so basically, um, you know, I had been thinking about this topic since I was very young. Um, I knew that part of my family had come from across the border. Actually, I learned that much later, but uh, um, I think I was connected to the border since I was very young because my paternal grandparents lived uh, sort of near the India-Pakistan border in East Punjab. And so we used to sometimes travel over there and um, just go wave at the guards type of thing, just for fun on like a summer day. And this is before there was a big, you know, Baga Atari border and it was all uh, like this big ceremonial thing. No, it was just like a border and a wilderness and uh, you can actually wave at the people at the other side. Um, and I knew it was like a forbidden thing, like you couldn't go over there. Um, and secondly, I come from an army family, so I was very well aware of the conflict. We lived in Kashmir, uh, Ladakh, um, you know, all the such areas where you become aware of the conflict. And um, third, I was in Punjab when a lot of the uh, communal violence unfolded in the 1980s. And, you know, um, the sort of post-violence insurgency and the crackdown and all of that. So I subconsciously remembered all of that, I think, and that definitely influenced me in some ways. Um, and finally, fast forward to, I moved to the United States when I was 10 uh, in my history class. So I had learned from my maternal, my paternal grandmother that they had migrated. So my mom's side is from uh, East Punjab and my dad's side is from Lahore, West Punjab. They had migrated at the time of partition. So I learned that uh, about that in, uh, you know, as a teenager. And in my high school history class, uh, my teacher, uh, you know, we were talking about, I think India was barely like a chapter. It was like one page maybe. Um, 
Uh, and we had um, a chapter on independence, and it just was like one line that basically Gandhi led a peaceful march, and the British left, and everything was fine. But I knew it was not peaceful. It was very bloody from what I'd heard from my family. There was millions of people that were impacted. So when I brought that up to my teacher, and she's like, no, well, you know, maybe your grandmother's exaggerating because it's not uh, like that in our history book. And in that moment, I knew that, um, you know, that was part of the problem, that uh, this history somehow, the folk history had not been legitimized. It was not official. And so... Um, so there was that incident, and I knew I wanted to do something to legitimize it. I just didn't know what. Um, fast forward to uh, my late 20s when I was in Hiroshima. I was actually doing my, a part of my PhD research in Japan, and I took a trip down to Hiroshima. And there I learned, um, I saw the uh, oral testimony archives, and I was really, really moved because um, you know, you you see books um, or you read books on the Hiroshima Nagasaki disaster, you watch movies, but really nothing hit me like the oral testimonies, the memories of the real survivors. Um, I thought like a lot of the stuff that they said was very relatable at, on a human level, and it was absolutely wild. And it really kind of drove the point home. And I couldn't stop thinking about it for, I think, a year or two. But in that moment, like when I was there, it hit me. Like that's what we need to do to close this gap in um, folk history versus official history. We need to actually mm. gather those voices because no one can deny a lived experience because when you communicate a lived experience, it doesn't just come across in your words. It come across as, comes across in your body language. It comes across in your facial expressions. It's communicated in multiple ways. Um, so, you know, words on paper can, uh, is what history books convey. Uh, words on paper can be altered, but when you have lived something, the, those visceral feelings, you know, they come out in your expressions and that, that cannot be altered. So, um, so I realized that we actually needed to document people's memories. So this is 2008 and, you know, I went home, I Googled, uh, and I didn't find anything like that. There was no such like archive of memories on partition, at least that was publicly accessible. Uh, so I just started recording stories on my own on my camcorder. I, I was a big like hobby sort of filmmaker for myself, mm. not a filmmaker, but like a, a home video maker is a proper mm. word. So I used to do that a lot. Um, I had saved up money and I had, you know, owned a bunch of like video cameras and stuff. So it was very natural for me. The next trip I went to Punjab to visit my family, um, I think that winter, and, uh, you know, I tried to pitch the idea to a lot of people in Delhi and even in Punjab. And they just thought it was like the most ridiculous thing. Like, why would you want to record these stories? But when I pitched it to a person who happened to be a freedom fighter in a little bookshop in Faridkot in Punjab, you know, Faridkot's a former kingdom, he was like, oh, yeah, fantastic. Like, we absolutely need to record these memories. Um, why don't you record mine? Uh, but I ended up like some of his customers came in and they overheard and they're like, Oh no, no, come to my house first. So I recorded their families. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately I missed mm -hmm. that bookseller because he died before I could get to him. But, um, that's kind of how it started. And then just all these people lining up to have their story told, uh, kind of revealed its need to me. And, mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's not how the project got big, but at least that's how it initially got started. So that's the initial story. Um, have you visited your uh, paternal homeland? 
Yeah, yeah. So I have been very lucky. Um, I've gotten to visit Lahore, some amazing, um, you know, uh, local residents there today. Uh, were very generous. They invited me when they learned about my story. They helped me get a visa and then they hosted me in their home, gave me just the most incredible experience. So I've gotten to see my old home and everything over there. And what kind of feelings did it evoke? Um, well, I think um, for me going to uh, Lahore and Pakistan was I just felt like it was I was in a half dreamlike state the whole time, if you ask me honestly. It somehow didn't quite feel real in a way because it was um it was very, very close to the Punjab that I knew in East Punjab, like very, very similar. But there were these mm. subtle differences that set it apart. And those subtle differences kind of really threw me off. Uh, because they weren't mm -hmm. too different. It wasn't like completely a foreign land. But at the same time, it wasn't exactly East Punjab either. So uh, these subtle differences kind of really threw me off and it just felt like a dream the whole time. And the people were just so incredibly welcoming and warm. I think that's how people used to be in East Punjab. I, I remember that as a kid, but you know, things have changed a lot today and you just don't have that sort of hospitality left anymore on this side of the border. And so mm -hmm. I was really blown away and I was pampered to the max as a guest. And um, so, yeah, it was a very, uh, quite an amazing experience for me. So um, you have been weaving this fabric of the, of the subcontinent, which is so beautifully interlaced. Um, and, uh, and, and, your, um, and this fabric is independent of the borders that have been drawn, the political borders. And as you're seeing, everything is just so similar. Can you yeah. relate some of the, the stories that you archived and the people who came forward? And what were some of the, the what was some of the common threads that ran through all those stories? Um, well, for one thing, I would say vast majority of the people, like 99% of the people we've interviewed, do not really hate people from uh, the uh, from other religions. Of course. And, and because they remember a time that was more cosmopolitan in the subcontinent. They remember coexisting. Um, but what happens is uh, their next generations only hear the stories of violence. They only, you know, the stories of partition really stand out more than anything else because they were such a, it was such a traumatic time. And so those stories get selectively passed down. And hence, um, the next generation is way more polarized and biased. And, and, you know, of course, there's also at that time, state controlled machinery that is also trying to promote these new ideas of these new countries and so on. Um, so that's one thing that I've seen in a lot of, uh, that's pretty common amongst the stories. Secondly, and this is quite a shocker, and I know a lot of people won't want to hear this. I also didn't want to hear this, but it is something that we should think about because a vast majority of the people say that um, they actually uh, had a better life in the British Raj. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I mean, you know, uh, we have to be social scientists then when we look at this data because it, it goes against the, um, you know, the narrative that we have today. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but at the same time, a lot of them will say that even though they were better off, they had a better life 
in those conditions, they still feel that freedom was an important uh, movement. And they still mm -hmm. feel that freedom was important to gain. Uh, but it's come to them at a cost of their well-being. Yeah. Not just due to partition, but just, um, you know, leadership and corruption and all of these things. So, so how do we account for this? I mean, as you're seeing, the narrative has been more of violence, of all the atrocities that happened whilst the movement was going on. Um, um, and it's about the, it's about a bloodbath. And I am myself, my, my own uh, grandparents were from Amritsar, which is just literally like the twin city across the border for, with, from Lahore. And, um, and whenever all the stories that I've heard from them have been of, of peace, of fun, of, of their childhood being, being so colorful and so full, you know, in all respects. Right. So, we hear that over and over again. Yeah. So, so how do we change? How do we change that mold? How do we change that narrative? How do we um, change that text? Which is misleading and which is misleading and then obviously uh, detrimental for this, for, for the millennials and for all the generations to come. Yeah, and I think um, we're seeing the impacts of that. I think today's politics and what's going on is uh, directly a result of a misunderstanding of this history. It's directly a result of the big gap in what I call the official history versus the folk history. And, mm. um, and so, um, uh, you know, what I would hope is that these stories that we are gathering, it'll take time. It'll take time for the learnings to go out. I think it's a 10 to 20 year journey. Um, of learning, because you know, first it'll start with a lot of academic research. Um, obviously, these stories are accessible to the public, but I think those uh, narratives that are um, more nuanced—that's that's going to take trained academics to bring out. And first, they'll probably come out in journals and academic papers, and eventually make their way into, you know, a more um, all-encompassing narrative a more true to the color narrative that will um, come out in history books. But I think it will take time. I don't think it's gonna happen overnight. Um, and you know, it's something very challenging to bring about, uh, especially with the direction that we've gone into in the subcontinent. So um, on, your, on your website, you say that um, you have helped uh, preserve about 7,500 memories. Of partition We're at 8,500 now. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, I, one treats the subcontinent as like a living being, like the entire living being, you know, with, with a heartbeat and a soul. And in your um, research, what have been the most diverse, you know, across the spectrum, emotional slash psychological impact on this, on this being, on this soul? Yeah, so I think um, I think the nuance has not been considered. I think, uh, and I think because of that, like there's been a very so we remembered it at an emotional level. I think, and uh, and there's been a huge when you remember something at an emotional level, it can be very triggering. 
and given the levels of PTSD and you know everything, it's very natural for people. Those, those feelings are so strong. It's very natural for people to try to bury them. And so there was a huge effort amongst people to forget about this and to move on, which is understandable. Mm -hmm. But when you intellectualize this history, uh, you need to actually then dig deeper because we a lot of the way that we live, a lot of the way that our world is today, a lot of the issues we have stem for this time, from this time period and they haven't been understood and they need to be understood. Um, and emotion is a good place to start because it, you know, gets us to relate to these histories on a human level and creates our interest in it. But actually we need to come at it from a um, more intellectual and objective angle. And it helps to be two generations removed from it to do that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, so I'm just kind of giving you, I'm kind of going off now, <laughs> building on what you asked me. But yeah, basically, I think, uh, I think the collective impact has been that we've buried um, a big wound, and we've tried to ignore it, but it's been festering. And we are mm -hmm. feeling the impacts of it today. Mm. Um, you know, in one of the books uh, by, by Eckhart Tolle, he, he talks about the pain body. And he says that um, um, it's intergenerational as well. And it just gets transferred. You know, the pain that you carry gets transferred. And yeah. it could be physical pain or emotional pain or psychological pain. But it just gets transferred from one generation to another to another. And there's research and being done on that now on partition uh, victims at Stanford University, for example. Um, yeah. So I was talking about um, the research currently being done. I was talking about Dr. Shiley Jane, who's at Stanford, who's a psychiatrist at the Stanford Medical School. And uh, she is essentially looking at the generational impacts of PTSD. Um, she started researching this topic because uh, she actually, um, she was inspired by her, or rather influenced, that's a better word, influenced by her father's experience at the time of partition. He was orphaned at that time. So a lot of his trauma, uh, you know, is passed down to the next generation and so on. And she's made some really interesting discoveries about PTSD, and that's sort of ongoing work. Um, now, in terms of something else that you asked me, you asked me about epigenetics. Um, there are groups studying that as well. And in fact, we're not groups, I would say, one particular group. In fact, we're looking to work with that particular group. Um, it's a biology group. Um, but since that partnership has not quite, um, you know, been finalized yet, and they're still trying to figure things out, I probably shouldn't say who they are yet. Uh, but if that research goes through and the funding happens, um, I think that will be a really important piece of research because uh, there have been, um, you know, links that have been shown for epigenetic research in uh, studies of the Holocaust victims, also in studies of victims of the potato famine. And you know several other incidences, historic sort of incidences that uh, have shown that there are these environmental impacts, um, even from uh, these type of violent instances uh, that impact uh, the genetic code, you know, for the next few generations and the genes that actually get expressed and so on. So it'll be really interesting to see how uh, the impacts on partition have been on people.
of course of course and so i mean it's it's just mind boggling to think that this has actually been one of the largest mass migrations in human history yeah yeah absolutely 15 million people am i right with my figures here um yeah so the approximate figure is uh 15 million people between around 46 to 48 and that um goes up to more than 25 million over the next 10 years mm and there were 2 million uh, obviously dying on on the way well there were some research from harvard recently that said that the number of deaths is approximately 3 million but we don't really know because you know we hear so many stories of people who recall their relatives who died of um disease and shock within weeks and months and maybe a year or two of partition you know psychological shock um and so those types of deaths i'm not sure are accounted for. i i i don't know about anyone else but for me there's always been a natural pull towards india and the few times that i've been there it it's been the the experience as you were saying has been uh, awesome and i i didn't have really any agenda and i was going for any sort of unraveling however um i do know that my roots uh, are there it's just in 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 the weave somewhere in the weave um so so with this fabric that you're trying to sew and weave and and fill the gaps what um what's what's happening in the future what are your plans um well i think our big focus now is shifting from documentation we're not going to stop documentation of course we're going to keep documenting as long as there are partition witnesses uh but we're switching uh we're slowly not switching but accelerating our work in the direction of dissemination and by dissemination i mean all the different ways in which these stories can come out into the world and um teach us about the past so everything from making them accessible to researchers to making them accessible to the public in the different forms you know so there's also like the responsibility that we have to bear of how we make these accessible to the world um because you know these are uh, not just poignant stories but these are stories that can be very triggering and they could sort of trigger the wrong sort of event if um you know the listeners maybe aren't trained in how to hear these stories in an objective mm. manner um so of there course. are those types of considerations and also like how to bring these out in the arts and how to allow the arts to engage with these stories i mean everything from film to visual arts to music dance theater um all the different forms of expression that can bring these stories and the lessons learned out into the public and there's of course literature and all of that as well have you faced a uh, resistance like harmful resistance whilst you've been doing this work since 2008 uh, like what would be harmful resistance how would you define that I mean in your country or across the border any way which has been harmful to your personal safety health or um harmful to to your to the members of your um, organization you know no not at all and i think part of that is because where this work doesn't really um it, it shouldn't really make anyone feel insecure Um, I mean, harm would only come 
if somebody felt like we were, you know, somehow harming them in some way. And so they wanted to retaliate because we're really giving voice to everyone. It doesn't matter what your political affiliation is. It doesn't matter what political party or who you belong to, um, what your beliefs are. It's literally just an open platform for everyone to share their memories. And, you know, when you sit there and you listen to somebody's life story, it's a really beautiful experience for them, for everybody around them in their community, um, because it's not just about the politics of that time, because I know that's what dominates our memory of that time in mm. popular memory. It's about lived experience. And so we haven't really had that sort of um, experience because this type of work doesn't really invoke those kinds of uh, reactions. You know what I mean? Mm. It's really just giving voice to everyone. Yeah, and, and I think you kind of just said it when you said that they, nobody should be insecure because really what you're trying to do here is uh, band-aid all those insecurities that we've, now this generation and the future will be carrying with us of all um, um, you know our ancestors went through and we all owe it to them, really. Yeah. Um, for, 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 to, to, um, you know, how they say, um, in, in, in Urdu ke marham rakhna hai zahum par. And it's, yeah. it's somehow, um, I, I, and I think that with your beautiful work, you're doing that. Um, Dr. Gunita, I know you're a very, very busy person. And before you go in, in the archives and anything that is at the top of your head, can you share with us, um, one very beautiful story that came out, anything that you might think which is just completely hot, wrenching, and dairy? Um, I think, you know, it's such a difficult question for me to answer, but of course I get asked this question all the time because every single story I've heard has blown me away. And um, I think that's just because you, when you listen to somebody's life story, somebody who's lived like at least 70 years or more, um, in our case, much more, every single time. Uh, I mean, those are really poignant. And, um, but yeah, you know, I guess you can say there are some stories where I continue to feel for the person long, long after. Maybe I can highlight those. These are especially mm -hmm. stories of people who were orphaned and mm -hmm. who watched their families get killed. And I think. For a lot of those kids, I'm not sure if they survived very long into adulthood because they were so traumatized. Um, but for those who did, you know, being able to tell their story can be extremely cathartic is what I learned. For a lot of them, they aren't able to tell their story. Uh, but a few mm -hmm. of them who have had the courage, and maybe it's because they had really supportive family members and supportive environments that allowed them to finally you know, tell this, um, for them, I think it's been really cathartic. And I've, mm. I've seen that unfold. I've, I've interviewed, you know, we've interviewed a lot of people who were orphaned at that time. And it's just completely crazy to think that millions of people went through this. You can only imagine like the impacts that it's had and we're just so not even aware. So true. So true. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your time and thank you for um, helping us um, mend these broken hearts uh, yes. with your work 
um, and uh, listeners, I will be putting the website um, on in the show notes. Please go through it because uh, ever since I've come across it, not been a day that I haven't gone through it. So uh, go through it. And Dr. Ganita, thank you so much. And uh, best of luck with all this noble work that you're doing. And may you succeed in in making this fabric so tightly weaved that no uh, political reasons can ever rip it, rip it apart. Thank you. Of course, of course. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. Thank you, and you take care. <laughs> you too. Thank you so much for listening, and we would be most humbled if you can leave us with a comment, a rating, or a suggestion. Thank you.